You're listening to the Douglas Jacoby Podcast. Here we bring you some of the material found on Douglas's website in podcast form. We hope that as you listen, you're challenged to think about faith. Today, Douglas continues his series on the Spirit. Now looking at the Holy Spirit, the Old Testament. For more on this episode, follow the link in the show notes to Douglas's website. Now here's today's teaching. We're going to be looking at the Old Testament. And in this first class, my approach will be to go through what I consider to be some very useful passages to help us understand the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament. That's what we'll do in the first class. And then we'll have the same approach, again, looking at seven passages in the New Testament. And in the final installment, we're going to talk about miracles today. And these are some of the areas we're going to look at. Like, why are miracles so popular? And does anyone actually speak in tongues? Uh, no. Uh, miracles in prayer and so forth. And again, hopefully, we'll have a few minutes uh, to make sure that, that your questions are answered. So back to our ministry school. In each unit, and we've been doing this for almost 20 years now, each unit there's scripture of memory and scripture work to do. Some of you in the room are graduates of things. So, for example, in Holy Spirit, you would need to know, let's take the, the second column here. There are some great passages that help us understand God's Holy Spirit. For example, in Matthew or Mark. But the truth is, there are quite a few in Matthew and Mark. But all you would need to know was Matthew 7. Not, it's not saying, Lord, Lord, even if you do miracles, it's obey. You just need to know the point in the chapter, not even the verse number. And you don't have to memorize it, just the location. 2424 talks about false Christs, false miracles. Just having at your fingertips, ready, verses like that can really help in a conversation when you're talking to someone whose opinion is not supported by Scripture. So we go through and we learn the location. In this case, it's about 50 passages. And in the course of aim, you learn several hundred passages. Now, some people have an extreme reaction. What? Hundreds? And yet these same complainers, these same slackers, will know the information on the hundreds of professional athletes. Previous teams, they know their number, they know their name, sometimes they know their height and their weight. They know hundreds of details. You learn hundreds of details about anything that's important to you. You do, and you can do this. So, the Old Testament. Just to, for me to be sure, I know my audience. Uh, how many of us have read the Old Testament all the way through? You, I mean, you, you finished every book. Okay, that's about one in nine in the audience. In most places I speak in the churches and the fellowship I'm part of, it's usually about one in ten. That is, probably 90% of our members have never read the Old Testament, except for a proverb here. Maybe they read Genesis, a little bit there. Now that actually makes me pretty scared. I know, to the point of, of tedium, I make this point again and again in every conference. But your Bible is mainly Old Testament. You, you look down, you notice that. So, I cannot overstate the importance of knowing the entire Bible, and not just the New Testament, Psalms, and Proverbs. Anyway, one 
benefits that comes from knowing the Old Testament is perspective and knowledge on all these great biblical themes. And so I encourage you, if you need to repent of your attitude towards the Old Testament, work on that attitude even today. You know, it's only the, it's just the middle of the year. You can still read the entire Bible this year quite easily. If you read about seven chapters a day, you'll finish by Christmas. And I would invite you, if you've never done that before, make that a goal for the year 2013. To say by New Year's 2014, yes, I've now read the entire Bible. I have this confidence when someone asks me if I believe it. And I say, yes, I believe the Bible. And they say, have, I, have you read it? And you say, well, no. But I believe it. You don't have to respond that way anymore. You can say, I read the whole thing. And yes, I had some questions. And not everything was easy. But on the current trajectory, I'm a believer. And it's looking good. That's a good thing to be able to say. So, my, my, my approach is to, to focus on seven scriptures. And, and again, just kind of to, to know you. How many of you would say, oh yes, you know, you recognize these seven passages already? Just raise your hand if you know all of them. Okay, go like this with your hand if you think you know some of them. Um, raise your hand if you have a guilty conscience. I'll close my eyes so I won't even look. I'm not even looking. Guilty conscience, okay, alright. I do not look. So we're going to start right here in Genesis. Because this is the first place the Spirit is mentioned. The Spirit. And for those of you just joining us, uh, let me let me tell you, when we talk about the Holy Spirit, this is something I was never interested in as a kid. I had the faintest idea what you'd be talking about. But when I was a junior in high school, I was invited to some neighborhood prayer meetings by a complete stranger. And he was part of what is called the charismatic movement. Like he spoke in tongues. And they believed in miracles and prophecy and, and raising the dead and so forth. Well, I couldn't buy all of it, but these were pretty nice people. And for two years, I went to their meetings. And so I actually owe them something. Not because they taught me about discipleship. That was probably a big weakness. But because they were the first people I ever met and that atmosphere and I, I, I went because the food was free uh, they practiced holy kiss of the opposite gender which is the opposite of what it is in the Bible but, you know, you, you kiss the girls the girls kiss you, the Bible it was always same gender kissing but they practiced the holy kiss, they had free food and, and people would interact with you and they weren't very judgmental which is not necessarily virtue but and back then it was, it was pretty good and I, I went there and my faith grew over that two year period but my faith grew but sort of by the number of questions I had and so this became something I was really fascinated in. okay that's my background in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth the earth was formless and empty darkness over the surface of the deep the spirit of God was hovering over the waters what's happening here God's creating What's connected with the creation? God's Spirit. 
It says in Psalm 104, God sends His Spirit and things get created. Now, I had no Bible background, but very soon after I was baptized, I learned 2 Corinthians 5.17. Before I was a Christian, I only knew one verse in the Bible, but it builds. And I, I, I learned this one in my first year. And what does that say? That's the one you should all memorize. And this is not a guilt trip. This is just, it's one of the 100 or 200 verses you really should know by heart. The oldest God, yeah, no, not the oldest God, but yeah, the, the oldest God, the newest God. But what's the first part of it? If anyone's in, anyone's in Christ, he's a new creation. Because God sends His Spirit, all things are made new. Now that's an important principle to help us appreciate the faith that we have. Now all these, I'm going to create a lot of loose ends, and they should be tied up as we, as we process through these lessons. The next passage, Deuteronomy 13. I was attending a, a big Florida conference. First time I'd ever been to a big seminar. It was on the scale of the conference you're taking part in right now. Except this was in Gainesville. Uh, there were a couple thousand people. And one of the classes was on the Holy Spirit and miracles. And the speaker had a really interesting accent. Do you? Because he's Irish. He said so many things in that class. Like, we got to show respect. When people believe in miracles and tongues, don't insult them. Huh, you believe in miracles? You believe in healing? Huh? Hey, how come you wear glasses? <laughs> Why don't you hear yourself? <laughs> things that are insulted. And he reminded me that Paul told Timothy, take some wine for your stomach. That Paul didn't heal Trophimus in 2 Timothy 4. He left him in my legions. Even Paul had some physical problem. Even if you did have a miraculous ability, it doesn't mean that you could necessarily use it all the time. But we sometimes distance ourselves or cover up for our gaps in knowledge. We resort to sarcasm. And this... Irish, very fiery speaker, writer named Jim McWiggin. And I ended up reading about a dozen of his books. He taught me something very important in that first summer as a Christian, summer of 1978. He's still alive. Visited him last year. He's still kicking, going strong. But there were two passages in particular I remember him teaching in that, that class in August 78. First, Deuteronomy 13. This is so helpful. If, let's say, a prophet or dreamer of dreams arises among you and gives you a sign of wonder. In other words, he announces some miracle, right? And the sign or the wonder comes true concerning which he spoke to you. Can you see this in the back? Can you read this? Well, and he says, let's go after other gods. In other words, he's saying, 
worshiping the one God, worshiping Yahweh, that's good, but come on, loosen up, lighten up. We can, we can blend in a bit more of the ambient religion. You shall not listen to the words of that prophet or that dreamer of dreams. Uh, in the Old Testament, prophecy and dreams are directly connected. For the Lord your God is testing you to find out whether you love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul. But that prophet or that dreamer of dreams, not very PC is it, shall be put to death. In the Old Testament, there were such penalties. So, break this down psychologically. You are with someone who predicts the future or who foretells something that, as far as you can see, is miraculous. Absolutely, there's no question it seems real. Now, the question of is it uh, counterfeit or genuine, that's irrelevant. Because to you, it seems real. It's pretty convincing. But, despite that prediction, it says that he's trying to lead you away from him, from the Lord. What is God doing? God's testing you. Could God be doing that today? Could God be doing that today? We should reject that prophet. So even if you say, yes, but Douglas, in my grandmother's neighbor's church, they really did raise a chicken from the dead. Many people witnessed it. Okay, give them the benefit of the doubt. Should we all follow them just because it seems genuine? Not at all. Because our first allegiance is to the Lord and to what He's revealed to us in His Word. And this world is full of different ideas about the Holy Spirit. Truth be told, this room is filled with different views and conflicting views. And that's okay. We be faithful to God, even when it looks legit. Have you seen that passage before? And can you see that such passages are beneficial? They can really help us. And you get this in the Old Testament. Both parts of the Bible are, are filled with beautiful stuff. Now this next passage I think is quite interesting. And this was the other one that my friend uh, Jim McGuigan shared. He pointed out that King Saul was not doing so well. King Saul had turned against the Lord. He had turned against Samuel. He was doing things he had no business doing. And King Saul at this point was jealous of David. I mean, this is David who brought down Goliath. In 1 Samuel 17, chapter 18, the people are singing songs, celebrating David and Saul. You know what they said? Saul has killed his thousands. David has killed his tens of thousands. He was so miffed by the comparison that he was filled with jealousy and he kept trying to set David up to get him close so he could throw his spear to kill him. And you know from 1 Samuel 13 and from 1 Samuel 15, even before this, Saul 
has turned away from God. This is kind of interesting because Saul sends messengers to bring back David, to capture him. It's basically an arrest party. Think of the arrest party sent to Jesus in John 7. Or think of the arrest party sent to the prophet Elijah in 2 Kings 1. Interesting arrest party. By the way, that's a good Bible study theme. Arrest parties in the Old and New Testament. <laughs> Successful or not. You can study that. Okay. Saul sent messengers a third time. And Saul says, if you want the job done, you know, you got to do it yourself, right? So Saul goes. Saul, who's trying to kill David. It says the Spirit of God came upon Saul also. These words are important. The Spirit comes upon him. And what does Saul do? He went along prophesying. He prophesied in front of Samuel. In fact, he prophesied all day and all night. So, is Saul saved? Then how can he be doing miracles? Is Saul right with God? Then how can prophecy be operating in his life? And we're going to return to this in the third class on the connection between miracles and salvation. I, I think it's just it's pretty clear in the Bible that they're not connected. But in our modern world, the implication is if you did a miracle, you must be doing something right. In fact, you must be saved. That is never the conclusion of the Bible. Here's Saul actually prophesied. Spirit falls on him, strikes him to the ground. He even joins the other prophets. Well, God would, he wouldn't do that to confuse us. Because Saul was a bad mamba-damba. Why would he have the thing fall on him? God will test us. Do you know this? You've seen this passage before. So I'm grateful again to my Irish friend for pointing that out. And I, at that point, I was just finishing off the Bible for the first time. And I understand when you go the Bible the first few times, there are a lot of things that don't hit you. But once it's pointed out that every time I'm reading 1 Samuel, I come to that passage. And I remember that time when I was 18.9 years old, in that audience, at that massive seminar. And I thought, wow, that's so helpful to me. Me with all my questions about the Holy Ghost. And me meeting all these incredibly religious people at Duke University, which is in the South, even though it's actually an enclave of New Jersey. Uh, Duke University, it's mainly New York, Pennsylvania, New Jersey, North Carolina. But I was in the South, and there's a lot of religion. And even now, we live in the Bible Belt. Well, the third passage, I'm not going to read, but I'll refer to it because um, it's, it's substantial. And in 1 Kings 13, the, uh, this is where Israel is, is separated into two parts. The southern part are the descendants of David. These are the descendants of David, Solomon, Rehoboam, and so forth. This is the lineage that Jesus comes from. This is the authentic uh, kingship. The north are those who follow false gods. Remember after Solomon, the kingdom splits. You got Jeroboam who sets up golden calves. Jeroboam who lowers their standards for leadership. Jeroboam who says, we need a rival calendar. 
We need sanctuary so people don't go to Jerusalem. It's all about control. And one of those northern sanctuaries was at Dan, the other was at Bethel. Okay, so there are two prophets here. Southern prophet who's a young guy. There's the old prophet who's an old guy. Why? Because he's old. But he's from Bethel. And the young prophet is doing well. He goes to King Jeroboam and he confronts him on his idolatry. Jeroboam says, seize him. They, they want to arrest him. And he stretches out his arm like, get him. By the way, this is a good Bible, group Bible discussion passage. It's a really good one. He, he sets, stretches out his arm and immediately there's a miracle. His arm withers like, and the king is afraid. And he said, oh. And then he says, heal me. And the prophet prays and his arm is restored. And, he, and the king calms down. Then King Jeroboam says to the young prophet, the anonymous prophet, he's unnamed, might as well be you or me. He says, come back with me and eat and drink, because certainly you're hungry and thirsty, and you don't want to stay here. The young prophet says, remember what he says? He says, no, I'm not going back. Because the word of the Lord came to me and said, don't go back and don't eat a drink. Now, I don't think he was saying don't eat a drink ever. But for now, you don't go back, you don't eat a drink. So the young prophet leads, it's good. But then he meets a prophet from Bethel, a northern prophet. And that man says, well, I'm a prophet just like you. And an angel told me, it's okay now. So he's from the false kingdom of northern Israel. And he says, an angel told me, you're free. So come back with me and eat or drink. And the young prophet says, okay. He eats and drinks, and then immediately he's killed by a lion. It's a really cool Bible discussion passage. Did I mention that? You'll get some discussion on that one. You know, was it fair? And what do you do wrong? And how does it tie into Galatians 1, verses 7 and 8? And it ties, it ties in very well. And then the old prophet is lamenting. It's a fascinating passage. But it shows us again, even a man who did a genuine miracle, the young prophet, he did two in that chapter, actually. If you meet someone who's kind of putting a new spin on the Word of God, even if an angel talks to him, and if you think an angel talks to him, you better pass the test. Because the young prophet flunks the test. He fails it. He goes with the story. He goes with the experience. Makes me think of Colossians 2, where Paul said, Watch out for certain people who love to impress you with their stories. They're into angels. And I experienced that, and I dreamt this, and I made up this new religious rule. It's all the fad, it's all the rage. They're trying to impress you, and they go into great detail about what they've seen. They go into great detail. They're, they're, sometimes they call them testimonies, but it's really just going into great detail. And their idle minds are puffed up, well, their minds puffed up with idle notions. In other words, they've got all the spiritual experience, but it's not necessarily authentic. 
Don't get sucked in, brothers and sisters. You share your faith with people, and they say, I too am a prophet, like you. I too follow the real God. And God has spoken to me this way and that way. And it sounds quite similar to the message you've heard, but it's not really. It's watered down. It's simpler. It's certainly more convenient. And as party that's tempted to go, because after all, I'd like to kind of go back now. And I'm getting hungry and thirsty. And you end up turning your back on the revealed word of God and making a fatal decision, a fatal error, like the blue screen of death that comes up on our laptops. Okay, so that is a great passage, Old Testament. This one we're going to come back to later, but it's in the Psalms. It has to do with being led by God's Spirit. Teach me to do your will, for you are my God. The prayer continues. Let your good spirit lead me on level ground. Now the fun thing is, it talks about being led by the spirit. Oh wow. So they were spirit led, huh? I want to share a passage with you. I don't borrow a Bible. That would be really helpful because right now my Bible is being used. Uh, because of it, a certain app at the book table. <laughs> so this is my Bible for the moment. And it's a cool passage in Nehemiah. How many of you are full-time college students? Oh, I like that. 80%. That's cool. The last two universities I spoke at in the last few weeks, one was in Albania, a Muslim country in Europe, which was, it was so much fun. The audience was two-thirds Muslim and one-third ex-Muslim. I was teaching on Islam. We had some real reactions. Like, huh? To, huh? Like people seeking, we see life, and some people getting uh, angry. And some people didn't really care. Full reaction. I'm trying to teach the truth, and be respectful, not be killed. And it was a great time. And then, a couple weeks later, I'm in Brazil, University of Brazil. Oh, six campus students. They cheat. They have ten members of the church who are not students sneak in. Some of them bring their work friends. But they have almost 230 non-Christian visitors at the campus event. Massively outnumbered. Some of them are professors, almost all of them are students, a full house. That's what I like. To see these people think about faith and maybe reconsider. Well, this passage hit me when I was, I guess I was finishing up my, my summer term at Oxford. And that year I was reading the RSV, I remember. It's good to read a different translation every year. Okay, don't be a slave to just one. This print is very small, but I'm going to read it. It says, I'm looking at 920. You gave them your good spirit to instruct them. It's not the indwelling spirit, John 14. It's not that in the Old Testament. What is it? You gave them... Your good spirit to instruct them. 
you did not withhold your manna from their mouths. You gave them water for their thirst. Now, if you only read 920, you'd think, oh, you know, how did the Spirit instruct them? What's going on? Gave the Spirit to instruct them. How did he do that? And then I noticed 930. For many years, you were patient with them. By your Spirit, you admonished them. How? What does your Bible say? For your prophets, yet they paid no attention. Thank you. That's the only time I have to do that. Thank you very much. God's Spirit is telling them what to do. How? Through a, a voice in their heart. There was a great Christian writer, theologian, highly respected. I read uh, two of his books. He died this last year. I won't mention his name now. But in one of his books, which was about guidance, he said the primary way that God speaks to us is through the still voice in our heart. And if we train ourselves to hear it, then God's Spirit will instruct us. But what does it say in the Bible? God's Spirit instructs us. Here it says through, through the prophets. It's through others who are bringing us the Word of God. See, we have this idea that being led by the Spirit means you have this intuition or prompting. I just feel I should talk to that guy in the red shirt. Or I pray I would be bold to talk to a man in a red shirt. And I talked to a man in a red shirt and he was receptive. Well, some people in red shirts are receptive, you know. Good to come out of it. You can just talk to some random guy. Either your faith will be strengthened or it should have been strengthened or he'll be open or he'll be closed. I, I mean, you can answer prayer. You can ask for prayer, and God will answer it by not answering it, or by giving you a positive response. I mean, it's like a self-fulfilling prophecy. It's in the head. God's Spirit instructs us through the prophets. God leads us. It's not through some hunch, though. If we educate ourselves through repeated study of God's world and God's word, God's people, we study it. We can develop kind of intuition. But it's because we're trained by the principles of God's Word. It's not because there's some shortcut where we just listen to the Holy Spirit. Oh, hang on a second. Mm-hmm. Okay, I'll tell them. That was God seeing me. Where you just give this hotline to God. That's not the way it works. I wish it did. It'd be a lot easier. They had to be disciplined and everything. Uh, I want you to consider such passages in the Old Testament. Isaiah 32. There are similar passages in Zechariah, in Ezekiel, uh, Joel. I'm thinking uh, particularly Joel 2. We, we read of a, a time, and, and this, you know, this part of Isaiah is written about 700 years before Jesus. It, uh, speaks of a time when the Spirit is poured out upon us from on high. That's not, that's pretty rare in the Old Testament. The Spirit poured out, come back, come back, come back, come back. And the wilderness becomes a fertile field. Well, why would that happen? And the fertile field, man, that's so thick, it's like a forest. Why would the Spirit make things grow like that and be so thick? Inverted. What's going on? 
Remember the first passage? The Spirit creates. It makes things new. When the Spirit's poured out, there's renewal. There's a new creation. So the Old Testament actually looks ahead to a time when God pours out His Spirit on everyone. Now, when does that happen? As Christians, we know when that happened. What was that day called? Yeah, the day of Pentecost. But that day was predicted, not just by Joel, it was predicted by many of the prophets. The time when God's Spirit be poured out. This is something that His people, the Jews, were looking forward to. Something in the future. Because when the Old Testament finishes, there's still a lot of unfinished business. So these are just seven passages. Why seven? Because to do more would be overwhelming for the time I have in this slot. Because it's a nice biblical number. And it's bite-sized. That is, there's no reason you can't learn these passages. Here's what I mean. Let's pretend you're a student in our school. What you would need to know is Psalm 143. You don't have to know the verse number. I don't care about the verse numbers. Just a chapter. Because if you know, the, you know the chapter of the verses, then you'll find it quickly, right? Yeah. All you know is, I think it's verse 7. You're going to be wandering. So all you need to know is Psalm 143, and led by the Spirit. And being led by the Spirit in Psalm 143 is going on level ground. It's God's Spirit leading us to live an upright life. It's about character, a righteous life. It's not about secret instructions from Jesus. It's the kind of people we are and we're becoming. So you just know Psalm 143, led by spirit. Isaiah 32, outpouring. Deuteronomy 13, Deuteronomy 13, God may be testing you. Huh, that's funny, I had another one in there. But it seems to have been omitted. Yeah. Uh, but but we, we mentioned that in principle, a prophet, he makes a prediction, Deuteronomy 18, it needs to be fulfilled or he's a false prophet and he must be executed. <laughs> you see, I know, it's, it's very, very intense for our culture to understand. Look, let, let's say you and the red shirt, just picking on red shirt brothers, let's say you make 10 predictions to be fulfilled in the month of July. And for some reason, two of them, they happen right on. You predict the president of a certain republic will be assassinated, and he is. And you predict a certain force race will be won by yellow buttons in the third of Belmont. And people will come to you for advice now and for gambling input, and you'll be on Larry King and Oprah and all because of your great predictions. What about the eight dust predictions? People love to look at Nostradamus, the medieval French mystic, who prophesied the downfall of the World Trade Center. Sure. The guy says tens of thousands of totally obscure things, and one or two things seem to be fulfilled. See, the Old Testament perspective is not, it doesn't matter, he, he got it, he got it right. It's, what about the other things he said? If I went down to Belmont and bet on every horse to come in first, I would win once and lose every other time and you should not be impressed okay that was kind of the point of Deuteronomy 18 but you get the idea it's manageable you can learn learn this in an afternoon 
Or you can learn all of them, because that's really cool. Alright? And if you want more, and I'll show you this later, um, there, there's a book table, IPI, and there's a great audio series by Andy Fleming, another by Gordon Ferguson, that could really help you. And my main text is, is uh, The Spirit, which is also in Spanish right now, just came out a few weeks ago. And there's an audio set also that could help you, I believe. Well, we have about seven minutes for questions about the Spirit in the Old Testament, not the New Testament. Okay, that's the next period. And then we're going to focus in particularly on miracles in the last one. But now we have six minutes left for any questions about this Old Testament material. And perhaps it's useful to you, I, I can lead these up just, just for your memory. Who'd like, to, who'd like to go and ask a short question? I see several, I usually start with the lady, Sister and Rotary. Um, and I'm going to repeat it, so be brief. Okay, I'm a little confused when you're talking about the Hotline with God, Nehemiah. And the point is, in Nehemiah shows us how God led his people, but he led his people through the prophets. It's indirect. They gave the word of God. It wasn't God just whispering in your ear or in your heart, do this, go there. Uh, when I was in the charismatic movement, I read, oh boy, I read so many books. And one, it was by a really respected man who taught this. If you're close to God and mature, you ask God a question, you'll instantly get a yes or no answer. Instantly, you'll know in your heart, if you're mature. Now, my experience is actually the opposite. The more I'm around, the more mature, the older I am in Christ, the more God lets me wrestle and figure it out on my own. But he's teaching a very different model that if you're spirit-led, you get the answer instantly without even having to wait. Does that make sense? So Nehemiah 9, in that case, gave, gave a great insight. It's, it's a review of Israel's history. But of course, the Spirit's in the Old Testament. It's just different than it is in the New Testament. It's a very different ballgame. The gentleman in the distinguished chair. Yeah. Were we talking about the same Lord's Spirit all the way through here? Uh, the word Spirit. Yeah, well, the Spirit, the, the Hebrew word is usually the same word, spirit. Um, ruach is breath or wind or spirit. Like in the New Testament, the Greek pronoun is breath, wind or spirit. It's normally the same word. But I would encourage you, and perhaps our friend is encouraging us, use more than one translation, because sometimes you'll find something different in a different version, and, and you need to be certain, or else you need to study the Hebrew. But the word spirit... Now, some theologians say, well, the spirit in Genesis 1, that's not the Holy Spirit. But I, I don't know about that. I mean, if it's God's spirit, it's certainly a Holy Spirit. You don't find the full-blown trinity in the Old Testament. But you do find a lot of passages that suggest a trinity. In fact, back to Albania, our Muslim friends normally, they would deny that God is love. They know God's not love. And God's not Father. That's not one of the 99 names of Allah. Some Muslims think differently. The Sufis, the mystics, the Muslims who speak in tongues. We'll talk about them later. But the Muslims would say God is not love. How can God be love if there's no one to love? 
like before the creation. Mmm, I just love myself. Mmm. That's, that's weird. That's not love. But if there's a trinity, see if there's already a family, a relationship, Father, Son, Spirit, then God can be loved forever before there are ever any creatures to love. And I think Christianity actually makes more sense than Islam in that respect. Okay, I saw a third hand. Was it? Uh, I don't remember who was next. Abu, no one comes to the front. Thank you. Yeah, in 1 uh, Kings 22. 1 Kings 22, Micaiah ben Imran. Yeah. I hate him. He never prophesies anything good about me, but only bad. When the, the, uh, the lion spirit is sent out, would that compare at all to Deuteronomy 13, where God is allowing to be okay, the question is, would 1 Kings 22 relate to Deuteronomy 13? Only insofar as it's a test. Because uh, Micaiah says, I saw, you know, this vision, and he said, who will go and be a deceiving spirit and not the prophets? It's a vision, it's a creative, it's not necessarily something that even happened. It's more like a piece of drama that he's using to make a convicting point. Which I think is different to Deuteronomy 13. Deuteronomy 13, we're reading about events that actually happen. So what's in common is that God is testing them. And that passage, the one you refer to, 400 false prophets are being led astray. And they're leading the king away, King Ahab. 400, and there's only one true prophet. And sadly, in the Old Testament, that's pretty typical. One quarter of a percent of the prophets are teaching the truth. Can you believe that? The other 99 plus percent are going the wrong way. But was it an actual event? Did he actually see, was there actually a discussion in heaven? Who will go and deceive him? I don't think so. But I don't think it matters. The, the point is clear. We have time for one more. Let's go on the right side and then I'll come to the sister and go to. Um, it's around the time of the Old Testament, specifically for Samuel, David, and Saul, but also in Daniel, I think it says that God sent an evil spirit. In 1 Samuel it says that, for example, God sent an evil spirit to Saul. When Saul turns away, God sends an evil spirit. Keep going. And so I'm just wondering if you could explain that. Because that was kind of confusing. I never understood that. Was it like a, just a, a bad dream? Or what exactly was that? It, it seems kind of unlike God to... It's one thing for God to be testing us by allowing us to believe some magician or something. But for God to actually send an evil spirit makes you wonder about the character. I mean, is he actually trying to mess the person up? I mean, it's kind of like God hardening Pharaoh's heart. And, and the, the emotional underlying feeling perhaps is un- injustice. Is God being fair here? Well, I'm, I'm going to give you a short answer because of the short time remaining. Events that are caused indirectly are often described in the Old Testament as being caused directly. In other words, God permits an evil spirit to go to Saul because Saul is inviting it. They would say God sent the spirit. Catastrophe is sent by God. Even if it's caused by people. If there's a storm, you could say God sent it because in a way God either permitted or directly created and caused or, or else permitted or allowed to happen everything that happens so in the Old Testament they don't make that differentiation between primary and secondary causation and that's led to a lot of confusion especially among our Calvinist friends who want God to be micromanaging every single aspect of the universe just they, the way the Hebrews thought about things was just different to you and me 
and we can't make them think the way we do because our job is to bend our minds to the culture of the scripture. I said I would come to you. We'll squeeze it in. Oh, okay. Um, my question is, is, is my understanding of the prophets correct when thinking about God using the Spirit through the prophets? They were not like the priests were handed down. So anyone could claim to be a prophet. And that's why God had to test that God had Prophets to versus priests. The priests were kind of institutional. Right. Uh, anyone could claim to be a prophet. Well, that's right. And so they had to be tested. But, but then the priests were tested too in a way. And the prophets especially tested the priests. The prophets criticized three groups of people, four groups of people in the Old Testament. The prophets criticized other false prophets. False prophets. They criticized kings. Pretty gutsy. They criticized the people. And what did I leave out? They criticized the priests, the establishment. And that causes a lot of tension. Typical example, Amos. Amos goes to Bethel, where the false prophet of Proverbs 13 was from. Amos goes there, conflicts with the state religion, and he really finds an enemy. So it requires courage to be a man or a woman of the Spirit. We hope you enjoyed Douglas's series on the Spirit. For additional notes and resources, be sure to check out Douglas's website in the show notes. The website has hundreds of articles, podcasts, and videos for you to access for free. You can also become a premium subscriber and gain access to thousands of online resources from Douglas's teaching ministry. Thanks again for listening.